from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. In science news, researchers have calculated how many ants there are in the world, and the number seems unimaginable. 20 quadrillion. That's about 2.5 million ants for every person, and a total weight larger than all the wild birds and mammals combined. For more on how scientists were able to come up with this new estimate, We'll speak to Dino Grandoni, environmental reporter at The Washington Post. This is a staggeringly large number that a group of scientists from the University of Hong Kong have estimated as the total number of ants in the world. You know, another way to say it, in addition to 20 quadrillion, is saying 20 million billion. I think the putting it in terms of weight really is striking. According to these scientists, the biomass of all the ants in the world is greater than the biomass of all the wild birds and all the wild mammals together, which is just remarkable and bewildering to think that, like, really, this world is, in a certain sense, ruled by ants and insects more broadly. Yeah, they say that that weight is 12 megatons of dry carbon. That's the standard way of measuring animals' biomass. For every person on the planet, there are about 2.5 million ants. So, I mean, who's anybody who's ever had kind of a, an ant problem at their home or whatnot, you, you see a, a huge mess of ants and you're like, wow, that's a load of ants right there. But this just really kind of uh, hits it out of the ballpark and there's so much more. So tell us a little bit about uh, the classic ways of counting ants. Uh, you, there's certain samples that you can take, sample sizes and all that. So what do they usually do? It would take many, many lifetimes to count every single ant on Earth. So what scientists do is, as you just said, they're sample. Um, and there are two ways of doing that. One is by collecting leaf litter and going through it and seeing how many ants are there. And the other way is by setting traps, basically digging a little hole in the ground and putting a pixie cup into it and waiting for ants to drop in. And it's through doing this you know, hundreds of times. I think these researchers looked at almost 500 different studies from around the world that the researchers were able to come to this estimate. And, you know, obviously this is 
just an estimate, but this is the best guess that scientists have been able to make so far. Yeah, and of course, you know, looking into this, right, so they got surveys from pretty much everywhere in the world. There are some spots in Africa and Asia that lack data, so there probably could be much more that we're just missing there. As you mentioned, it's kind of one of those things you're never really going to know exactly how many are there. But ants, you know, they're all over the place, uh, probably in the coldest regions, some of the only places that they're not. But while for a lot of people, they might be pests or, or something like that, there really are a lot of benefits to having ants in this world. Yeah, absolutely. They, by digging their tunnels in the ground, help aerate the soil. And by dragging seeds underground for consumption, they help plants sprout. And as pesky as carpenter ants and other wood-destroying insects are, our forests would be, you know, stacked to the brim with wood if we didn't have them for their decomposing power. Now, uh, what we're hearing from in a lot of different areas is that there might be what some are saying a bug apocalypse. Uh, we're going to start losing, uh, you know, a large percentage of insect species. That some may go extinct. All of that. Now, we don't know if ants are particularly in that group. Maybe some types of ants or whatnot. But tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So one of the kind of most hotly debated questions among ant scientists is whether. We are seeing insects broadly around the world in decline. There are studies from Germany and Puerto Rico that suggest that insect numbers are going down. And if that's the case, it's very worrisome for all of us who care about plants being pollinated and for ecosystems being sustained. But we aren't quite sure about ants in that equation. We know that like butterflies and beetles are facing downward pressure on the population, but the scientists don't know yet what the situation is with ants. And that's one of the reasons why they did this study. You might ask yourself, how, what's the point of knowing that there are 20 quadrillion ants in the world? Well, it's, that's a baseline for future work to determine whether that number is going up or down. Dino Grandoni, environmental reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. This week, we also heard from a very influential U.S. task force, that has called for routine anxiety screenings by primary care clinicians in adults aged 19 to 64. This follows a similar recommendation for children and teens 8 to 18. The recommendations were made to raise awareness for mental health and catch the signs of anxiety, which can go undetected for years. For more on all this, we'll speak to Rachel Zimmerman, contributor to The Washington Post. This is a fairly influential group of medical experts, and for the first time, they are recommending that adults under the age of 65 get screened for anxiety. And this guidance is designed really to help primary care doctors identify early signs of anxiety during routine exams using questionnaires and other accepted screening tools. And the thinking is that if you can catch some of these symptoms early, obviously you can connect people to treatment and the greater chance there is to alleviate some of the suffering from a variety of anxiety right. disorders. Yeah, one of the big things with this is that this often goes unnoticed. Real big anxiety, people just don't get the treatment for it. And they even looked at some studies citing that the task force cited as well, saying that the median time for initiating treatment for anxiety is 23 years. So people can live with this stuff for a long time before even getting help. That's right. And Part of the reason for issuing these recommendations is simply to raise awareness that this is a common problem. In fact, anxiety disorders are some of the most common mental health illnesses that we face as Americans. It afflicts about 40 million adults each year. 
And there are treatments, like there are medications, there are various relaxation and desensitization therapies. So there is help available. And this is something that primary care physicians should begin to take on because generally these recommendations, as you said, if they are eventually approved, they do change the way doctors practice medicine in this country. They, They listen to this task force. Anxiety is just kind of this big term for it. There's much more specific types. They have generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, panic disorder. There's others, you know, so it's kind of important to help narrow it down. And so how does this uh, take effect? You know, what are the recommendations? They would add questionnaires to some of these check-ins, things like that, because some of these primary care physicians say this could be pretty burdensome, too, to add another layer. And then beyond that, right, the shortage in this medical fields, right, it could be tough to even service the demand. Right. I talked to a bunch of doctors who question how the recommendations would play out in the real world, right? You mentioned we have these mental health providers who already can't meet patient demand. They're completely swamped. And patients who are waiting months for an appointment with a therapist. So there are the mental health providers. There's that situation. But then there are the primary care doctors who are now going to be tasked with adding yet another screening to their long list of screenings in very short appointments when they are often dealing with patients with incredibly complex medical needs and chronic illness. So one primary care physician said to me, look, if we are asked to screen for one more thing, we are going to break unless we have more resources to deal with this. But, you know, other doctors, primary care doctors said, this is really important. If we don't ask about mental health issues, people don't necessarily raise them. And one doctor I talked to said, since 2020, when basically she said all of her patients are anxious, she just routinely says, how's your stress to everyone? Because this is something, as you said, with the pandemic, who doesn't feel stress? And, you know, that stress of obviously there's everyday stress. We all feel that. But then in many cases, it escalates into some of these disorders. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's been a huge shift into acknowledging mental health and and getting help for mental health. We've seen athletes turn that way, you know, There's been a greater focus on this. And this task force already made very similar recommendations to screenings for children and teens ages 8 to 18. So uh, I think uh, by the uh, middle of October, we'll see if these uh, will be approved for final approval. But again, you know, they're just a greater emphasis on uh, screening for anxiety right now. Rachel Zimmerman, reporter writing about mental health for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. 
OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Finally for this week, why does it seem like so many kids need glasses these days? Myopia or nearsightedness for decades was thought to be just a genetic condition, but optometrists are seeing kids come in with vision worse than their parents. Cutting back on screen time and spending more time outdoors and in open spaces could help, but there's also a sprouting market for treatments to slow the progression. These are called myopia control or myopia management. These treatments can take the form of contacts, lenses, or even drops. For more on the myopia generation, we'll speak to Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. The old school of thought is that myopia is genetic. If your parents are, gen- are myopic, you might end up being nearsighted and needing glasses yourself. But over the past few decades, what we've seen is just a really dramatic rise in how common myopia is. So you're saying in the 2000s, it was 42% of the US. In the 70s, it was only 25%, right? So there's definitely an increase. And this kind of increase can't really be explained by genetics alone, because genetics are not changing so much in a generation or two. It's even starker in Asia, in places like uh, cities in China, for example, in Singapore, you're having kids, up to 80 or 90% of kids graduating from college or high school are needing glasses to see their vision. So clearly there is something going on that is not just genetics. It's not just the fact that our genes, are they're obviously not changing. There's something in the environment and about our modern lifestyles that is accelerating our loss of distance vision. And again, it kind of goes back to the whole thing of kids should be getting outdoors and playing a little bit more. What causes myopia? There's a lot of things that go into, as, a, as you mentioned, genetics plays a part, but something called near work. So things that could include reading and writing, scrutinizing text, you know, looking at screens all the time is a common thing that people point to. That could be one of the big things going on and, you know, maybe spending some more time outside or in wide open areas could help the eye not change shape so much. Yeah, that's right. So it's <laughs> the answer to what's going on is in some ways both stunningly obvious and right. among scientists surprisingly controversial. So as you say, it is something about our modern lifestyles, right? We're actually spending a lot more time inside looking at screens, reading books, watching TV, scrolling on our smartphones. Whereas, you know, our ancestors tens of thousands of years ago were, you know, outdoors, hunting, gathering, foraging, obviously using their eyes in a very different way from us. But when scientists sort of don't really agree on is exactly which part of this is actually causing it. So there's, as you mentioned, one school of thought is that it is near work, that just by simply looking at things that are close to our eyes for a long time, I sort of just like think, well, our near vision is important, but our distance vision is not. So they kind of just adjust to kind of only looking, seeing clearly in the near field rather than in the distance. Uh, There's another school of thought that it's not actually how much time you're spending looking at things near to your eyes, but actually how much time you're spending outdoors. So there are a couple of different reasons this might matter. One is if you're outdoors, you're obviously looking at things that are much further away than you would be if you were indoors looking at a screen. Um, The other is that there's a lot more sunlight outdoors. Even on a cloudy day outdoors, it is just actually much, much brighter than it ever gets indoors. And some scientists think that there's something about the way that 
when your eye gets a certain type of light signal, that helps it grow to the appropriate sort of roundness and size so that you can see clearly at a distance. Uh, it's really not quite clear exactly which theory is correct, right. but the sort of upshot is the same, right? Because if you're spending less time indoors, you're spending probably more time outdoors. So that's kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I mean, I'm in this crew with the myopia. I've wear, worn glasses for many, many years now. And, you know, glasses, contacts, laser surgery, these are all things that help people. Uh, you know, everybody's very uh, <laughs> well-versed in all this stuff already. You know, they tell you the uh, healthy eye is supposed to be shaped like uh, more like an orb. A nearsighted person has uh, more of an olive shape. I've also heard a uh, football shaped like a football eyes or something mm-hmm. like that. But now, you know, what we're seeing in other parts of the country, it's barely making its way to America in the Bay Area specifically. Treatments for this myopia control, myopia management. And this comes in the form of special lenses, eye drops. I think like three different types of treatments on this. So tell us a little bit about that. If you're in a big city in the U.S., you might have encountered this already, but it's certainly not ubiquitous. It's actually a lot of the research into myopia management comes out of Asia. As I was saying earlier, there are really, really high rates of myopia there. And so there's also been a lot of myopia research. So the idea behind myopia control is that you cannot actually reverse myopia. Once your eye has become olive shaped or football shaped, I'm also myopic, so I'm in that uh, category <laughs> of both shaped and eyeballs. Once your eye gets to that length, it's there's no way to make it grow back, right? But those of us who've had glasses since we were young, we've probably had this experience of our eyes getting worse and worse every single year. So what myopia control does is that it tries to interrupt that process. It tries to slow down how much kids' myopia is progressing year to year. So it doesn't necessarily stop it entirely, but it does slow it down. And as you say, there are currently three treatments. One of them is FDA approved. That's a contact lens called MySight from a company called CooperVision. And uh, what these contact lenses do is they just kind of focus light inside your eye in a specific way that seems to give it a signal to stop growing too long to make sure it grows to the right length. Another is an eye drop called atropine. And a third is actually something called ortho-K or orthokeratology. And those are actually hard contact lenses that you wear overnight uh, that kind of reshape the front of the eye so you can get clear vision during the day. This also seems to somehow change the way light enters the eye to kind of give this growth signal so it continues to be rounder rather than more olive shaped. It's kind of been really popular among Asian American families who've kind of been hearing about it from their friends, uh, sometimes back in Asia or their the network here. And um, you, know, you mentioned the Bay Area, which is an area with a really high Asian population. I went to a clinic at Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley, where that is kind of devoted to myopia control. And there are lots and lots of little kids there in, in glasses. Now, it seems to be spurring an industry, right, a potential market for this type of stuff. So you'll probably be hearing a lot more about this pretty soon. Obviously, there's costs associated with this, and this can be pretty expensive, this myopia control. Tell us a little bit about that, because the specific thing that's happening right now is vision insurance doesn't really cover any of these treatments. That could change in the future Mm -hmm. as this kind of market possibly opens up. But tell us about some of the costs associated with this. So depending on the exact treatment you go with, it might be anywhere from hundreds of dollars to thousands of dollars a year. So this is a really expensive treatment. And as you say, vision insurance doesn't cover any of it. So parents are paying who are looking for this are really paying out of pocket. An analogy that you sometimes get thrown around is that like myopic control, the future might be something analogous to braces, which is something that you don't you know strictly need for medical reasons in most cases, but parents might be willing to spend uh, to essentially make their kids' eyes or, or teeth a little bit better or better for them. We are sort of on the cusp of likely this field becoming just a lot more popular. 
So, you know, I've, I've talked about the treatments that so far, and I mentioned that most of them are not FDA approved, so they're being used off-label. Um, but a lot of these are going through FDA approval right now. The companies are running the clinical trials to get FDA approval. Uh, there's a, also a lot of excitement around um, not just using contact lenses, but special types of glasses that, you know, similarly, they work by focusing light in the eye in a slightly different way. And the reason doctors are so excited about glasses, they think that this is going to really open the floodgates of myopic control, is that um, myopic control is best if you start young, right? Like you want us the earlier you start, the sort of less, more progression you can prevent. Right. Um, but if you have like a, you know, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, they're probably not very excited about getting <laughs> eye drops or lenses in their eye. Um, their parents may not be very excited about that either. But you can put them in these special spectacles um, that might do the job just as well. And some of these have already been approved in Canada and Europe, and those companies are working on approval in the U.S. as well. And in some of these uh, areas, as you mentioned, in Asia, where they're kind of doing this a little bit more now, right, you start the treatment young, you go into your teens and 20s, and then hopefully you've staved off as much as you can with all of this. I, I kind of just want to end, if you could just kind of comment on how we've gotten here to this point. And I want to lift this just from the article that you wrote, you know, just kind of how we've ended up here, adding chemicals and putting pieces of plastic in our eyes every day, just in the hopes of tricking them back to their natural state. I mean, this is the point that we've gotten now to help protect our eyes. And as you mentioned, right, uh, some estimates say 2050, that could be nearly half the population or more than half the population that's myopic now. Yeah, it is a little bit absurd if you kind of just back up a little bit and think about the situation, which is that, you know, our, our bodies are not adapted to our modern lifestyles, right? So if we've sort of like created all of these ways to kind of retrofit them to a modern lifestyle, right? We go, you know, exercise on a stationary bike because we're not exercising enough in our ordinary lives. Uh, we wear braces because, um, you know, there's one theory is that we're not chewing a fruit as much as it used to because we're eating softer cooked foods. So that's the reason why our teeth uh, and jaws are not aligned the way they used to be. So we have braces to deal with that. And so myopia control might just be another example of the ways in which we've kind of, you know, contorted our bodies in modern life. Or now we're trying to undo it with technology. Well, keep an eye out for more news on this, really. And then some of these treatments popping up, you or your children might be <laughs> in the market for some of this coming up pretty soon. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Great talking to you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.